This episode is brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It's a delicious, sugar-free, electrolyte drink mix. I tried this recently after hearing about it on another podcast, and since then, I've stocked up on boxes and boxes of this and usually use it one to two times per day. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks. As a coach or an athlete, you will not find a better product that focuses on the essential electrolytes your body needs during competition. Element has become a staple in my own training and something we are excited to offer our coaches and student athletes as well. Element is used by military special forces teams, Team USA Weightlifting, at least five NFL teams, and more than half the NBA. You can try it risk-free. If you don't like it, Element will give you your money back, no questions asked. They have extremely low return rates. Element came up with a very special offer for you as a listener to this podcast. For a limited time, you can claim a free Element sample pack. You only cover the cost of shipping. For U.S. customers, this means that you can receive an eight-count sample pack for only $5. Simply go to drinkelement.com slash justinclimo. That's drinklmnt.com slash justinclimo to claim your free eight-count sample pack. Drinkelement.com slash justinclimo. The Context Podcast is proudly sponsored by Delta Wines and Brick and Mortar, our everyday go-to with sustainability built in. Delta Wines are vibrant yet balanced, made to be enjoyed on special occasions. Brick and Mortar was founded in 2011 and has worked to create the European wine drinkers, California wine. The wines are small lot, single vineyard sourced from Napa, Sonoma County, and Mendocino Ridge. In addition to tasting good, they also help you feel good with an eco-friendly packaging and environmental nonprofit donations with every purchase. Buy online at winesforchange.com. Also, use the code CONTACTS to support us and get a discount. The presentation is beautiful, the wines are great, and you'll be supporting Saving the Earth. What more do you need? Again, that's online at winesforchange.com, discount code, contacts at checkout. Hello, and welcome to Contacts, a podcast dedicated to bringing you practical ideas from coaches sharing what they have learned throughout their career. I want to open the door into my network of contacts whose innovative, reflective, and diverse coaching knowledge may offer ideas to enhance your experience. I'm your host, Justin Klimo. Welcome back to Contacts. We are joined today by Aaron Quinn, Director of Athletics at Middlebury College, calling in from Vermont in the East Coast. Coach, appreciate having you here. Great to be here, Justin. Thanks for having me. As athletic director, you have coached in your past and you have a long, successful track record there at the school in your coaching career and your other stops. But if you could take us all the way back to the beginning of how you got into coaching to begin with and what was the process for landing your first job and then any subsequent significant moves since then? So I'll go way, way back and it'll make it It'll make you nervous because it'll make you think we're going to spend an hour and a half just talking about my path. But I'll fast forward to say that in some ways, it was surprising that I wasn't thinking about coaching all along. I had a grandfather who coached uh, high school, but didn't know him. So maybe didn't have that impact. When I was growing up as a kid, 
even playing midget football in fourth grade, I'd go scout the other teams by myself. I asked my freshman football coach if he scouted the other teams. He said, no. I said, can you take me and we'll go scout the other teams. I was a middle linebacker and before the snap, I'd run 30 yards downfield and get an interception because I knew what was going on. So I always had a cerebral approach to the games that I was playing. But I also thought like, you go off to college and then you get a job after college and that job is quote unquote in business. And I didn't know what that meant, but I thought that's what you're supposed to do. So I went off to Middlebury College, majored in economics, did a couple of internships as an undergrad, thinking that's what I have to do and needed to get a job. And financially, I did need to get a job when I graduated. Just floating around wasn't an option. Doing the internships showed me this is not my path. Sitting at a desk, ironically, now as athletic director, I'm sitting at a lot of desks, but doing whatever business meant, that was not going to be my thing but no idea what I was going to do. So I signed up actually to go to officer's candidate school for the army, hopefully go to airborne school, infantry school and ranger school and be an army ranger. And the idea there was, I don't know what I want to do. I'm an athlete. So not knowing what I want to do, this will move me forward. It'll help me with leadership. It'll help keep me being an athlete at the elite levels. That was going to be after graduation in 86. That's 1986 for the younger viewers from Middlebury. I had some neck and shoulder injuries my senior year in Middlebury, got postponed till January. So I went back and coached football while I was just going to work out and bide my time to go to basic training in January. Those neck and shoulder issues did not go away. Mm. So I had to get out of the military commitment. And I had played football, basketball, baseball, track growing up, didn't know anything about lacrosse. But the lacrosse coach said, hey, you coach football in the fall. I liked you the way you did it. Why don't you coach lacrosse here this spring? My now wife, uh, then girlfriend was still an undergrad. So he said, you probably want to see her anyway. So it makes sense for you to stick around Middlebury. I'll teach you lacrosse. I think you'll really like the sport. He had not played the sport and he was the head coach at Middlebury. So got me into coaching lacrosse. I really liked it. Had an opportunity uh, to coach at Tufts University football and lacrosse and get my master's. So for the next two years, I went to grad school full-time and was a football coach and a lacrosse coach, but I got my master's paid for. So I had a couple full-time jobs, still wasn't sure what direction I would go. Got a master's in teaching and wasn't sure if I'd go the route of teacher coach and teach history and, and coach at the high school level or go college. I was the finalist for a teaching coaching job and an English job opened up. So an English major got it. And I was a finalist for a job at Lake Forest College in Illinois and that job I got. So that was my path. If I had gotten the history job, I might've been a teacher, but I did have that sense at that point. Okay. I think I'm a teacher coach and how that plays out, whether I'm a coach in college, who's a teacher or whether I'm a teacher who's coaching at high school, one way or another, I'm a teacher coach. Mm -hmm. Even at that point, it took me that long, Justin, to really say, this is actually a career. This is something I can do as a career. And it was a lot of like great mentors who said, yes, this is an actual job. This is meaningful. The impact you're making on individuals is going to be important. And I'll just share one quick anecdote and then wrap it up and turn it back to you is to say, I think a pivotal moment for me is the year after I was graduating when I was coaching and I was trying to decide what do I do next. And I ended up with that Tufts job. I was lamenting in our locker room. I've got this Middlebury degree. I'm supposed to be doing something with it. And I'm teaching people how to backpedal. And I was saying this to our head football coach. In retrospect, it's pretty disrespectful, questioning his entire career, right? Like, hey, this is useless. 
And he said, that's just your vehicle and you have a talent for it. It's your vehicle and it's that proverbial ripple in the pond. So it is a career. And yes, you do have to know how to teach, how to backpedal appropriately, but you're doing that so you can impact that person in a bigger way. And then I reflected on that was what happened in my life and with sports. So it really launched me into saying, this is a career. This is really a, a vocation and an avocation. And that was a pivotal moment, that conversation. I want to touch on a few things that you mentioned that I think are very relevant and often go unsaid. One, you knew nothing about lacrosse, but you could teach and you could coach. So why don't you come do this? And for the listeners, you are, I think, statistically the second winningest coach in Division Three lacrosse in the NCAA with something like an 82% win percentage. And you did that for X number of years. You can correct me on that in a second. And at the same time, at the college level, you coached football and lacrosse every season. So it wasn't like, hey, this is all I do. It was, oh, okay, sure. Let me figure this out. I can go teach this and be successful at a high level if I work. And to figure out that I'm not really married to either of these. Let's see what the universe steps in and tells me. And I often tell people sometimes our best decisions are made by other people. And you end up sitting where you're sitting because they went a different direction, which opened a door over here and you were willing to walk through. And it has led to what has become a very long journey where now you're the athletic director at Middlebury after a distinguished coaching career. You said sports is a vehicle, and and I agree with that 100%, and that's what I tell our kids here. Look, we do athletics for two reasons, to teach you to be part of something bigger than yourself, and as a vehicle to teach leadership and followership. And the fact that is where you have landed really resonates. I'm curious about stepping into the role of athletic director after years of success and what triggered that change? What prompted you to make that jump? How has that gone? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks. And I was being kind of mindful of time and not wanting to then go from coaching into that. So I figured I would pause and and thank you for coming back to that. My coaching career was around 20 years, 15 years of that was assistant football, head lacrosse at Middlebury. And we did have a, a lot of success, which was great. And more importantly, I'm in touch with so many of those guys who've gone on to do so many great things. And we work together to make a difference in a world still with, with a lot of those guys. There was nothing negative about it. I didn't burn out. I, I wasn't tired. I was fortunate to get that job really young. I think the flip side of that is we continue to try to challenge ourselves and grow and experience new things. The way I think of that the change to being an athletic director, I certainly didn't know it all. I had a lot of room to grow. And I think for all of us, we can continue doing that and should our entire careers. But I felt like I kept growing in two silos, a football silo and a lacrosse silo. And they so dominated my time and what I could do that it didn't let me expand with breath at all and have any other experiences. The payoff and the depth was so important that I wasn't jumping out of coaching at all. But this opportunity to become an athletic director where my vertical strengths would be completely hammered down to almost none. I didn't have a lot of administrative experience, but the experiences were very relevant to prepare me for that next move. And it was that breadth of issues and decisions and 
different types of people that you're dealing with. I'm dealing with male athletes in two sports. So a limited roster of people and spending all my time with them, which was incredibly deep and meaningful, but not as broad maybe as I was looking for. So I was young forties and looking at an opening in the AD's job and saying 20 something more years of coaching these two same sports at the same school. If I stay here or changing schools or maybe applying for this job and, and just applying a lot of those same principles that I applied in my programs to a broader audience and learning how to deal with a broader range of issues and a broader audience as well. Men and women now and administrators, trustees, the whole gamut. It was another opportunity for challenge. And just like when I took on the lacrosse job, I think one of the lessons that we learn in sports is not being afraid to fail. Saying, yes, I will be a lacrosse coach, even though I've never played, is taking some risk and putting yourself out there. Saying, okay, we've just come off six out of the last seven years as a lacrosse coach. Our teams have been in the finals. We've won three of those championships. Yes, I will step away from that give that up and step into an administrator role where I've never done it before, taking that risk and saying, yeah, I may fail. I, I may or may not be good at this. I don't know. But for me to grow and continue to stay fresh, it's worth the risk. 100%. And you bringing it back to risk and failure and the lessons that we can learn from that. I came across an acronym with a group that I'm part of on Sunday fail for all I've learned. So how do you want to phrase that? How do you want to conceptualize when things don't go the way that you want? Oh, I'm terrible. I can't get it done or no, actually, I just learned a ton. And here's where I can apply that. And it sounds like, yeah, I'm having success doing this. And here's an opportunity for personal growth and for me to serve the institution that I love, that I can give back in another way, broaden and expand the reach of what we've been able to accomplish and pour into others. And so really cool that you were able to do that. And you've been able to continue to serve for all this time. I wonder if let's call you a veteran coach in AD for those younger yeah. listeners that we had to yep. identify 1986 for what you would offer as things you still needed to figure out that you kind of hair blown back the minute you sat down in that AD's chair or even that first head coaching job, what were those for you so we can help our listeners prepare for that moment? Thanks. Really good question. I think on a different scale and for different reasons, probably the number one thing and, and that I continue to have to work on is empathy and listening. And I'll talk about beginning as a coach and then beginning as an AD because they're a little bit different. It's both the same issue, but for maybe different reasons. So when I first take over as a coach, not having played, pouring a ton of time and effort into learning, I really have to be vulnerable and empathetic. And those are very popular words today. And I'm not even sure if I would have used them at that time but I would have talked around it without using those words necessarily. I knew what I knew and I didn't know what I didn't know. There are going to be situations that come up in games where I just don't know. And that might be an X's and O's thing because I hadn't played the sport and I hadn't experienced situations because I hadn't been involved. Football, I had played since I was third grade and there's still going to be things you don't know, but it's easy. You don't have any lack of confidence and you're not trying to prove yourself. You're just like, ah, that's funny. I don't know the answer to that. Let me go find it out. So 
being vulnerable enough as a coach, as a young coach to say, I'm confident, feel like I belong here, but I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. And saying, I'm going to have to learn from you guys. There's going to be some things that come up that I've not experienced yet. And I'll just admit that. So that vulnerability is one important thing. Mm-hmm. And then the empathy is sometimes as a young coach, wanting to prove yourself, wanting to show enough to be in command. You may not be listening as much. You may may not be asking as many questions. You're trying to prove yourself and to put yourself out there. And the listening cap might not be on as much as the telling cap. And you kind of have the hubris of youth and you're telling people because you know the answers. Mm -hmm. And then as you get a little bit older and you feel more confident and you feel more comfortable in your role, then you can take a step back listen a little bit better. Better listener, I would say early. And then also, I think I actually, for whatever reason, had that sense of being able to be vulnerable and just say, I know what I know, but I don't know everything. And I'm a young coach. Let's Mm -hmm. just admit that. And I never played this sport from a lacrosse standpoint. Then you think like, oh, I've got this all figured out. Now I'm going to go do this as an AD. And I probably was not quite reflective enough. Mm -hmm. I knew I had a lot to learn, but jumping right in as AD, thinking that everything will apply directly and exactly as it did with my coaching and that I'm coaching 18 to 22 year olds. Now I'm the AD for a staff of 50, 55 people, many of whom are my seniors and then 650 athletes. They're all just going to fall in line behind me and believe the things I believe and listen to what I listen to. Hey, no, listen to this. This is what we did in our lacrosse program. And they're like, yeah, no, this is not how we do it in my program. And don't tell me what to think. Bob Anderson, who coached at RLS years ago, was a good friend of mine. And he works with emotional intelligence, gave me an assessment in my first year as athletic director and said, you need to work on empathy. It's not terrible, but it's a little lower than you'd want it to be. So the listening skills and being comfortable, not knowing everything, asking better questions, Mm -hmm. not feeling like you have to have all the answers are some of the lessons that I would say I've learned. Yeah. And those are fantastic nuggets of advice for anyone getting into this. And I almost feel like hearing your story, you had the accidental blessing of not actually knowing the sport you were going to coach. So you had to be curious right away. You had to be vulnerable. You had to ask these questions, which then probably set you on that path where it was a lot harder for you to make the mistake of, I think I have all the answers. And that's such a valuable tool to remind ourselves what beginner's mind looks like and how do we lean into that. And I had a buddy on the pod the other day talking about as the athletic director, one of his main roles is he's everybody's assistant coach. He's there to, to give suggestions and to support and make their lives easier in addition to setting mission and vision for the program. And I thought it was a really interesting way to look at things that I hadn't heard phrased that way. And and it sounds like that's what you're figuring out there. As an athletic director, you're in a unique position now that you're not coaching two sports at the same time to be more present for your coaches, for all of your athletes at practices, at games, seeing different ways of getting to the same place. What would you say is the best thing you do institutionally or that you've seen on any of your teams that has the largest ripple effect on the culture in a way that is tangible and I don't even know if this is a right word appropriatable that can be shared like hey this is really good and this is going to be transformational for a program 
Another great question. Thank you. And I apologize, I forget exactly how you phrased it, but I would say you mentioned the word culture. Just the fact that we think about the primary importance of culture. Mm -hmm. So as coaches, we can get very task oriented and recruit these players and put in this system. And when I was coaching and was asked to give talks to this group or that group, if they ever gave me a blank slate to say, talk about whatever you want. Sometimes they say, we want you to talk about extra man offense or zone defense or whatever. But if it was like, you can talk about anything you want to talk about, I would always talk about culture. And I love the general Stanley McChrystal's metaphor, a leader is a gardener. You're creating this environment to allow people to flourish. And yes, you are watering it. And yes, you are maybe picking out a weed here and there and providing sunlight, but you're just providing this environment for your plants and for the gardener and for us, our athletes and our coaches to thrive. For me, that starts with really having this culture. That was really important to me as a coach. I would have picked that up, not just on my own. It wasn't because of my brilliance. I would have picked that up because of coaches that I was working with in our department and administrators in our department. So it was an easy, natural fit that when I became the athletic director, that we would just really continue to intentionally and explicitly talk about developing culture as a department and then culture as a team. So we're not hammering away and focused completely on tasks or outcome results like winning, but really about culture. I'm not going to go as far as to say we do that better than everybody else, but we do that well. And then I'll say two other quick things, Justin, like one thing I think we do well that I just referenced is we have a great history of excellence. We have, I should know the exact number. I think we have 33 national championships as a department. It's 32 or 33. I apologize. We have some of the best coaches in the country, some of the best coaches in their sport in the country. We have phenomenal athletes. We have Olympians and we don't spend a lot of time talking about winning and losing. So I think a focus on the bigger picture, this is my phrase. Not everybody in our department would repeat this necessarily, but I think of it as in sports, there is a scoreboard, there is an object to the sport and we do coach to that. And we understand that there's an object to the game, score more goals or more baskets or whatever. But is our purpose to score more goals or is our purpose bigger than that? And we think our purpose is bigger than that. So I think we do that really well. We combine this excellence in terms of the results, but without a focus on the results. Mm -hmm. And then one of the things I've learned as an AD that that I, I articulated as a coach, and I believed this as a coach, and I think I did an okay job as a coach, but I saw coaches on our staff doing it better is doing all of that, like all of that important work pursuing the object of excellence at its highest level, understanding the bigger purpose to what you're playing for and, and with. Also maintaining a sense and spirit of joy while you're doing that. Mm-hmm. That sometimes can be a struggle. You've got these big ideas and then you forget to enjoy the experience or you go the other way around and it's just all about fun. That's fine. That's more like intramurals though. If it's just about having fun, there's a place for that. That's out in the backyard and that's intramural. So how to combine these things is maybe something that we do really well or aspire to do well. And where I learned that really was from watching some of our premier women's teams. Mm. It felt to me that our women's coaches and women's teams were competing at the highest level. And I would see them in national championship games and they're having like a dance party in the locker room before the game, whereas guys would be like putting on war paint and 
playing heavy metal and getting like totally into themselves and banging their heads against lockers. It was like a lesson number one, year one. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is why I wanted to be an athletic director, experience other cultures, experience other ways of doing things, seeing where I can grow, see what I've been missing. And Mm -hmm. one of the things, I don't think I missed it as a coach, but I was like, wow, I, I could have done that even better there's a way another level of joy mm-hmm. that allows people to be free to express themselves as an individual and mm-hmm. in the locker room and on the field. And then that leads to success on the field. Yeah, so. for sure. You touched on the importance of culture, what you learned watching a couple of your female counterparts and as a football coach and a lacrosse coach, right? Those are almost the polar opposite, as you mentioned, to what you were seeing It brings me back to how sometimes as coaches, we get tunnel vision and we're not looking next to us to see what we can learn from somebody coaching a sport that doesn't necessarily relate, but you can take things from those and and get them into your own approach, which are going to help your athletes. Are there any specific tangibles that you can point to that Hey, I saw this coach do this. It was super powerful. I adopted it. I put it in. Or I saw this coach do this and shared it with the rest of our coaching staff because of its value and have seen specifics translate in a way that can be shared with others. Absolutely. Biggest example in my coaching and my program is in 1999, that was the first year we went to the national championship game, but we were struggling a little bit early in the year. We were on a spring break. We had an excellent lacrosse staff and there were three of three or four of us. So we had enough resources there to have a good conversation. And I recognized the conversation was turning a little negative about our leadership or lack thereof. And I just sort of took a step back and listened for a little bit. And I said, Hey guys, we're at Middlebury college. We've got incredibly smart guys. We've recruited all these guys to come here. They didn't just randomly end up here. One of the top academic institutions in the country. And we have a really good team and a really good program. We had won an NCAA quarterfinal game the previous year. We had a lot of those guys back. So I said, this is on us. Like, we, we don't have leaders, then we're not developing leaders. So let's stop blaming the players. So I said, let's go and ask all the coaches in our department. You pick these coaches, I'll pick these coaches. Are there any things you're doing to develop ownership by your team members and leadership by your team members so it's not all top down? It's not all about the coaches and the coaches doing all the motivating. Our men's hockey coach, I think, and Bill Beanie ended up, he might've won maybe nine national championships or something. He's phenomenal. So Bill said, oh, absolutely. We pick these three-on-three games or small-sided teams. We pick teams, captains pick team. Seniors will pick, they're the captains of each team. They pick a team. They stay together for the whole year. We keep stats. We keep records. We do not coach when we play those games. They're a little all small-sided three-on-three games. We never coach. We officiate and we let them sort it out, but it's competitive and we keep track of records and stats. So there's something on the line. They get really heated and really competitive and we really make a big deal of it so that it mimics game experience as much as possible, but no coaching all players. So we're like, oh, let's try this. So we did that. And it's not a straight line between we then went to six national championship games Mm -hmm. following. That was our first year we went to the national championship, Mm -hmm. but it's a very important part of that. And it was just developing this. The only coaching we would do is if there was total blowups, guys get mad at each other on the sidelines because there's no coach to help them. But that's great. We would debrief for Mm -hmm. sure. 
we would debrief what happened today, what could have gone better, but we would not tell guys how to act. We would not tell them how to lead. We would not tell them how to compete. We would let it play out. So we definitely got into the habit then of every year we're going to meet with other coaching staffs. And I'll always ask our coaches now, what did you do during this year? Who'd you talk to? What coaches did you talk to? And we have this great culture in our department of the swim coach popping into the softball coach's office to ask a question or the squash coach asking the football coach a question. And yes, very much a part of who we are. We think there's lots of transferable stuff we all do. And Mm -hmm. maybe the biggest thing that I learned in my practice preparation was these mini games and, and how to construct them. And that came from our hockey coach. He had gotten them from our soccer coach. I love the story because it's something that is tangible. One, somebody that's listening to this can instantly put that in, use that, develop their own version of it, see immediate results in the growth of the athletes we're trying to serve because you're now empowering them to lead, giving them a voice, letting them see the results of their work. And it's just such a good share. And I appreciate you sharing that. Earlier, you made a comment about failing as a way to success. And it makes me wonder if you have any particular failures that you look back on that you've leaned on throughout your coaching career in an attempt to get better? Oh yeah, this happened and it led to X as a success because yeah. of that failure. Yeah, I'll go right back to 99 again because anytime I think about failures, this is the number one I think about. We had been talking a lot with our team over the preceding years about really focusing on the task at hand, focusing on ourselves and I used the sort of cliche with our team, but I really believed it. It's about the journey and not the destination. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I articulated that. I meant it. I believed in it. And the first regular season game of the 99 season, our players for the first time ever started a tradition that they did every year after that. And they would come up with a shirt that's only to be worn during warmups on game day and then under your uniform, mm -hmm. never to wear a practice, not to wear outside and that kind of stuff. And each team each year would pick a theme. So that team, the 99 team picked, it was in a circle. It said journey across the top and destination on the bottom. And we got on the bus for the opening game and the captains and seniors had done this and didn't tell me about it. And we get on the bus and I'm in tears because I'm like, ah, oh, you guys actually listen to what I'm saying. So they were embracing that because the, the year before in 98, we won the first time a New England lacrosse team had ever won an NCAA playoff game at any level. Wow. So like you look back at it now and say, oh, you just won one quarterfinal game. No New England team, division one, two or three had ever won a, a playoff game. Maybe one team had, but it was against another New England team or something. Mm -hmm. So we had this theme and it was really important to us and we believed it. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the national championship game that year, the destination, right? When you're talking about the object of your sport is to win the championship and, and that's the national championship. We couldn't win more than that. Everybody is super nervous the day before the game. Our practice is terrible. People are yelling at each other, throwing the ball away. And I don't really pick up on that vibe enough. I'm probably helping create the tension. I have this sense that before the game, as we go into the locker room, and I never tried to be a big speech guy. And, and I would tell guys intentionally, you're not going to get a big speech from me what we do during the week is our speech. I'm just going to remind you in the locker room, very unemotionally, in a relaxed way, comfortable, smiley. 
hey, this is what we talked about. We're prepared. Remember these things. These are our theme for the week. These are the things we're going to focus on. Then I would try to say before we went out, do your best and have fun mm-hmm. and bring it in. Okay, great. Now we go in first national championship game ever. I don't remember the exact theme, but it was just like the big thing. And I had them walk in a circle closer to me. I had it all orchestrated. Like I was going to win the national championship for them by this pregame talk. Didn't go well. I could see their looks on their faces. What are we doing? I immediately felt, oh my gosh, I couldn't stop it. And then we go out and we're warming up and we're doing okay in the warm up. And then People come in from the tailgate area and there's 25,000 people at the game and we're in Bird Stadium at University of Maryland. People just stopped practice and they stopped throwing the ball. Everyone, myself included, we're all looking around and we played horrible. I yelled at one of our players in a tone of voice. I thought I was going to jar him out of his anxiety and nervousness by yelling at him because he's a rough guy and might react to that. And it sent him into a shell, but that's not my style. And, but I went out of my style. So I just apologized to guys after the game and and said, I didn't coach well at all today. Again, we were, we won the next three years in a row. And I think that experience, all I know that experience helped us a lot. We were very relaxed. We really believed that the destination, the results, they will take care of themselves. We're not focused on that. We love each other. We're going to focus on that. We're going to focus on doing as well as we can, whatever. We're competing and we're competitive guys who want to win or whatever, but we just didn't let the competition get away from us. We came back from a 10-3 deficit in one of those games and mm. went into overtime and just played pretty relaxed. We played our best in the postseason because we were super relaxed in the postseason because it was not like, oh my God, like our identity is based on whether we win this game or not. Yeah, no, such a great story and a reminder for all of us that when we go out of authenticity, it has more detrimental effects than positive and We forget that we can't control everything and we need to focus on controlling the controllables in this situation. And you had a pattern established and broke from that. And maybe it affected the game, maybe it didn't, but it definitely reminded you of who you were. Very important lesson. I'm gonna roll two questions into one here because you've talked a lot about your journey and I think coaches can infer the answer to this from what you've already shared, but I'll ask it in a way that you you can maybe spin it to fit the needs here, but how has your approach to coaching changed throughout your career or leading as an administrator? And what have you most recently changed your mind on in your process of growth and self-reflection? Sorry if I keep repeating this, but I love these questions. These are great questions. So I appreciate that. And it's a little bit interesting on changing the coaching, right? Because I haven't coached in 15 years. I've been an athletic director, but I'm very thoughtful about coaching and approaches to, uh, to coaching. I wouldn't say it's a change, Justin, but it maybe relates a little bit to the story I just told. Mm-hmm. It, it would be, you know, like if I had to go back and talk to my, you know, younger self, it would really be to deeply affirm the things that I learned over my career. You don't get to do those because a lot of times those lessons come with experience. But I might go back and say, your identity, your self-worth is not tied up with wins and losses. Hey, your older self will be 20 years after a guy, 25 years. I was just on a call the other day with a guy from 25 years ago. And we've done a bunch of service work together and we remain really close. Hey, your kids are going to be in your former players' weddings 
as ring bearers. Like those are the things that matter. That's what's important. Doesn't matter that, again, we have an object of our game. We're going to try to prepare. And, and if you're not trying, if you're not aspirational, if you're not trying to compete, then you're not putting yourself out there and taking risks. But it's the purpose of why we do that. So I would just deeply affirm those things earlier in my career. You're trying to prove so much to yourself and you can get in your own way and get off of that path of what you know is right. So I would spend a lot of time deeply affirming those things. Then I think recently, Justin, I think as recently as this year, I think for a lot of us this year who maybe thought we had inclusive cultures on our team, that we understand diversity. We've had a diversity, equity, inclusion committee at Middlebury in our department, in our athletic department for five years. I've been doing at our conference level, diversity, equity, inclusion work for all 15 of my years. And you think you sort of are doing some work and you're creating inclusive cultures. And then after the events of the summer, the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, and everything that's happened since then, it's been an awakening to say, we're not doing enough. We don't understand enough. Talking about inclusion, but not having really well-developed ideas of like, how do you create an inclusive culture? And you might have a predominantly or exclusively white team. What does that mean around inclusion? If our program matters beyond the walls of our locker room and we're an all white or predominantly white locker room, what other metrics of inclusivity are important in that room? But then how do we take what we have in that locker room and, and have it benefit broader the broader community around these issues? So these are issues that I thought about and talked about with our team. I think all of us probably have a different lens on that in this past year that if I could go back and do it again, I'd have more of a laser focus on those things. And some of this stuff, again, you need experience and in hindsight can be 2020. And ironically, it was just in 2020 when all that happened. So it gave us some better vision for some of the things that we need to do around inclusive cultures. For sure. And personally, in having a pretty diverse background in my upbringing, it's not something that's front of mind. And it wasn't until Kevin got back here and brought with him what have become school values, core values in a sense, with inclusion and belonging being at the forefront of that. And in that time, really thinking about if you're building culture and you're really trying to grow contributing humans, how are you teaching them the skill set and the awareness that's going to be needed when they get out into the real world? And I think that's a really important mind shift for a lot of us. And the whole point of that question is just, what are you doing to grow today? And how are you challenging your belief system? Where often we get rooted in our experiences and our lessons and think there's just one way to do things when there's so many different opportunities out there if we're willing to constantly evolve. So I really appreciate that answer. Since you tackled three questions at once there, I'm going to throw you a curveball that you're not ready for. And... <laughs> We'll test this one out. What one small act of kindness from somebody contributed to your success that you will never forget? I think right from the start of my career, the lacrosse coach who preceded me at Middlebury, Jim Groob, seeing something in me as a coach, and he liked me as a coach, knew that I hadn't played lacrosse, but it, then he invested in me. We're both early morning guys. He would put on a pot of coffee in his office. We'd go in probably at 4.30 or 5 in the morning, 
And we would spend a couple of hours before the rest of the, the regular workday started because we didn't have those hours in our workday, but I needed to learn how to coach lacrosse and needed to do it fast. So that investment in time, and if we were driving somewhere, he'd have the lacrosse rule book out and he would say, okay, what about this rule? And then what's this interpretation? How about if it was this situation? So a mentor and our head football coach, Mickey Heineken at the time was the same type of mentor, really investing in me as a younger coach. You know, you have this call out culture now, so I don't say calling me out, but it was really without us having those terms back in the eighties, it was more of a call in culture, but holding me accountable, not being afraid to tell me like, oh, you know, you should maybe consider this, this would be a better way to do this. Did you really get prepared? So really investing in mentorship. So if I get a call as an AD, I get calls from a young person in graduate school and can I have a Zoom call? I'm writing a paper. I like to think that I've never said no to any of those offers and meeting with our students, younger assistant coaches. So that gift of mentorship, to me, that's not a small gift or a small act of kindness. It's a huge one, but that had the most lasting impact on me, both in terms of setting me up for success with my career, but also setting me up for understanding the need to serve and to give back and to share the gifts that we have with other people. That's a great story. And I think it applies not just in your own takeaways, but for coaches seeking mentorship that might not have it readily accessible. The answer is usually yes, if you reach out and ask a sincere, authentic question of another coach, even if you don't know them. And yes. that's what I would spin out of that for the listeners. Hey, don't be afraid to ask somebody. You already don't yeah. have the answer. And the worst they can say is no. So go on out there and chase it down. Fantastic way to wrap this up, coach. Had a great time. Appreciate you taking the time out of your day to, to come on the pod. Well, it was great. Thanks for having me, Justin. Good work with this podcast. Great questions and really good to spend some time with you. This podcast was also brought to you by ttroops.com. As coaches, our inboxes will get flooded with noise on how to make your program better teachhoops.com will get you focused on what needs to get done. One thing you've heard from these podcasts is no matter the experience, you got to keep pushing yourself to be better. Coach Steve Collins will help you direct that noise. He is there to help you. He has the credentials as a coach and he's never turned down an Teach Hoops member. Sign up for a plan at teachhoops.com and mention us at checkout. This site is here simply to help you be better. Take advantage and see you on the court. Remember, go to teachhoops.com. Hi, this is Natasha McKeel, recreational tennis player at the club at Pasadena and labor and delivery nurse. Ever feeling tired after a long day at work or after tough practice? Try Element. That's L-M-N-T for the energy you're missing in your life. It's sugar-free and filled with electrolytes your body needs for energizing power. It's try it risk-free, money-back guarantee with our special offer at drinkelement, that's L-M-N-T dot com slash Justin Climo. You only pay the shipping. What's there to lose? Power up! Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically right to your device. Second, be sure to check out 
the extra resources at contextpodcast.com. On the website, you can search the full text transcripts from that episode and other content links. Hope to catch you on the next episode.